Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Jeremy Surrey. Jeremy is a historian, a professor at UT Austin, and the author of multiple books, including his most recent, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. During our conversation, Jeremy talks about the circumstances leading up to the American Civil War, the key players in the war, including Abraham Lincoln, Robert E. Lee, and Ulysses S. Grant, the Confederate roots of the Ku Klux Klan, little-known facts about important Confederate leaders in the war, including those who joined and agreed to fight for Mexico, and those who eventually rose to American political power during the post-war years. Perhaps most centrally, Jeremy argues that Lincoln's grand vision for a fully unified, equal America was never realized, and its after-effects can be felt and observed to this day. Despite its historic atrocities and current injustices, I still believe that America is the world's best hope for human freedom, real prosperity, and inspiring the rights and the dignity of the individual. Its founding principles have endured and have changed the world, and people vote with their feet. There's a reason why America continues to be immigrants' top choice as their preferred home. The United States will never be perfect, but it can be better, and the knowledge and the insights from this book can help the place Lincoln called the last best hope of Earth. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeremy Surrey. Jeremy, it is so great to see you. Um, I guess we can just start by me saying, you know, it, it's awesome to be hanging with you in person again. Welcome to the show, man. It's great to see you. Great to talk it's, to you. It's always great to be on your show. <laughs> I love the conversations, Dan, that you stimulate, and uh, I'm just uh, honored to be a part of one. Thank you. Uh, I've been thinking in the last few days how I want to start this, and I, I think it may just start with just the simple question of the book we're primarily going to talk about today. I know you and I care a lot about this country and our culture. Um, I think for people who listen to this, it it always is uh, interesting and worth getting the background story of where did this come from? You've yeah. written a lot of books. Yeah. You are a busy man. What what drove you to address the topics that that ended up becoming you know this massive undertaking, this massive book? What's the story there? Well, thanks for asking because uh, writing a book is a journey. It is a massive <laughs> undertaking. It, it looks easy when you have it done and you're holding 350 pages, but you know there are dog ears in every page. Um, so in 2017, when I finished my prior book, uh, The Impossible Presidency, which was really on why so many presidents fail yeah. and what we learn about leadership from presidents. Um, I came to realize at that point that there was a real missing piece. And I think this is how research evolves, right? You finish one project and you realize, oh, holy smokes, there's so much more I still need to yeah. do. So much I don't know. The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And uh, what struck me was that uh, presidents since, since the Civil War uh, and leaders of all kinds have uh, faced uh, limits, limits on what they're able to do based on our institutions and assumptions in our society. And I really wanted to understand where these assumptions came from, where these limitations came from, and their limitations on democracy. At the same time that I was thinking about that, what we might call the hidden limits on leadership, uh, I was struck by how so many of the assumptions about our democracy that I believed in, that I had written about, 
quite frankly, that I had been naive about, even as a historian, how they were being shaken in our society. And we don't really have to get into politics, but uh, I will say that one of the things about doing this book and doing this book tour for Civil War by Other Means is that I've been to about 25 cities, and, and every every audience I talk to, whether Democrat or Republican, they feel the last four or five years have shaken their assumptions about our society. And I think those shaken assumptions are related to the limitations on leadership, because they're assumptions leaders have long made that don't hold up. And so I was really trying in this book from the beginning to understand why do we have institutions that seem, for example, to make it hard for people to vote? And that restricts leaders. Because if you're a leader elected, you want to actually be able to say that the people really elected you, not the electoral college. Uh, Why do we have a society that seems to allow so much bullying and violence? One of the things that even presidents face is that other politicians in our society are able to stand in the way of what's their legitimate use of power. Uh, and uh, really trying to trace the origins of that took me back to this period after the Civil War. And it really seems that uh, the end of slavery was a great accomplishment for our society, but then there were other troubling um, behavior patterns that were intentionally placed into our institutions. The way I've been describing this is their uh, bad roots placed in the ground. Mm. And not every season do the bad roots sprout particular plants, but in some seasons they do. And these are there and can be exploited. And I think the last four to five years, we've seen uh, these um, bad elements of our institutions being exploited. And I think what I can contribute as a historian is not so much a solution, but a diagnosis. I I see myself as a sort of a medical doctor for democracy. Uh, Why is it that we're the greatest democracy in the world with so many limitations built in, where do they come from? If we understand where they have come from, we might be able to do something to address them. Yeah. You start the book with the scene that, and I've heard you say this in presentations you've given about the book, that you just said this, that the last few years have really shaken you, I think is the word that you, you've you used in public presentations that you've given. You start the book on January 6th that has now become infamous in, in our country, and it may be helpful just to begin to paint the picture from your perspective and your research of, uh, I think you just used the word limitations, the, 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 the threads that connect in your mind through the research between the Civil War and what we have just experienced. And, you know, I, I think you're a very hopeful guy. I think you clearly are open to discussing some of the more pessimistic and dark aspects of human nature as seen through history, but you always seem to have a way to you know view the future with some some uplift um what are those beginning threads you know you you just talked about the the limitations on on power and the structure of our own system that may have led to what we have seen what has shocked you and and um i think really affected you what is that story there what did you begin to uncover that is worth mentioning Sure. So I, I open the book, as you say, with January 6th, even though the book is mostly about the 20 years after the Civil War, yeah. which is, uh, uh, you know, 140 years earlier. Yeah. Um, and the, the most important thread, I think, that connects to where, where we've been talking is that um, what happened on January 6th was uh, that a, a large group of Americans, far from a majority, a minority, but a large group, uh, decided that they didn't want to accept the outcomes of an election. And uh, what they did was exploit the strange opportunities in our society after an election to try to stop the person who has been elected 
from duly taking office. Mm. In most countries, uh, take, for example, Brazil or uh, Germany or France, countries that have recently had elections, uh, the election's over, the winner just takes over. <laughs> There's not a long transition. And that's for good reason. In our society, there is a very long transition. It initially goes back to the problem of having to get an Abraham Lincoln from Illinois to Washington, D.C., which would take, <laughs> which would take weeks. Yeah. We're not in that world anymore. Uh, but that's an opportunity that's exploited by many. And what those on January 6th did is, whether self-consciously or not, they used many of the old tactics from after the Civil War, tactics that were used uh, in local and state governments, as I show in the book repeatedly. Uh, first of all, claiming fraud yeah. without evidence. Second of all, uh, intimidating and violently attacking people. And then third, actually trying to stop the process itself. And uh, it struck me that this was a replay of that history and a replay that's particularly American. Hmm. Every other society has had people who have been against or tried to undermine an election, but this was a very American way of doing it. And I think it's so evident, uh, Dan, when you look at uh, these individuals, uh, I profile Kevin Seafried in the book, um, who is from Delaware, ironically enough, yeah. and he's the gentleman who was carrying the large Confederate flag, first person ever to do this, to carry a Confederate flag into the Capitol. He actually used the flag to beat a police officer, break a window, and then carry the flag in. And you have to ask yourself, why the Confederate flag? Uh, I show in the book also the infamous image of the gallows that was set up, a mm. lynching gallows mm. on the lawn. And you had these individuals saying they wanted to hang Mike Pence and mm. hang Nancy Pelosi. They're evoking this period right after the Civil War, the lynchings, the violence. Um, and that history for them is meaningful and legitimizing. Mm. And it's legitimizing because we have not done, for instance, what the Germans have done better with the Holocaust, which is to confront this history and make it clear to everyone why this is not acceptable behavior. So they're exploiting that historical hole in our society. And I think that made it harder for someone like Joe Biden, who'd been elected to office, whether you like him or not, mm. to actually assume the powers that a leader should have. Yeah. Let's rewind the clock. And I have to say, just in refreshing my own interest in the Civil War over the last you know week or 10 days in getting familiar with your presentations and your book, there's just so much material in there that we could probably spend 24 hours talking about and not get through all the details of let's the, do it. <laughs> <laughs> the fascinating stuff that, that you have discovered. Why don't we start at the, the beginning of the moments that you think really mattered immediately preceding the war itself. And you go into some detail about that, but it probably makes sense to start with the election of 1860, which yes. you go into in detail and you know you you note this consistently that you know Abe Lincoln was a republican obviously he won the plurality of the vote what matters about that election to you now to a modern audience that is both interesting and important to, that actually triggered what ended up becoming the, the bloodiest war in the history of our country? It's a great question. Uh, a few things. First, you had a Democratic Party, the party of the Confederacy, that was split, but was dead set on keeping slavery at all costs. This was not an election uh, where a large part of the electorate was willing to compromise on the key issue. We like to think that elections are these moments where we find compromise. I don't think that's true at all. Elections clarify, but they don't shift the deck, really. Um, second thing that's significant about that election, I think the most important thing, is uh, Lincoln is the first Republican elected to office. 
and he creates the modern Republican Party. Uh, Lincoln is a poor white man from Kentucky and Illinois. Uh, Kentucky is, of course, a state that has slaves and has large plantation owners. He has neither slaves nor mm. land. And this explains why he becomes a Republican and why he's anti-slavery, uh, which is that for a poor white man like Abe, uh, slavery is the worst possible thing. Mm. Why would anyone pay him to do anything? And so the Republican Party that he is instrumental in creating, he's not the first Republican candidate, but he's the first one elected, is a party that's committed to what we would today call capitalism, free markets, free labor, free soil, free men. Every man should be able to work, should be paid a wage for his work, and then should be able to use that wage to buy property. You shouldn't inherit property. That should not be the only source, nor should you have slavery. And this is the party that forms, and Lincoln is instrumental uh, his his election is not him simply getting election uh, getting Republican votes. It's convincing many in Illinois, Ohio, New York, and elsewhere who had been Whigs, who had voted for the party that accepted slavery, mm-hmm. to now embrace a capitalism that you and I would recognize today yeah. as a capitalism of free labor and and property ownership. And his election, even though he doesn't get a majority, getting a plurality, really shifts American society. It creates the modern party system. Mm-hmm. That's the Republican Party of uh, Theodore Roosevelt and eventually Ronald Reagan. I don't know if it's the current Republican Party. (laughs) Um, And so his election creates this new party. And what's crucial about the Republican Party is it is a party that uh, is willing to compromise in some ways on slavery. There is actually a willingness to accept slavery in the South, but not the expansion into slavery in the new territories. And this sets the United States on a new trajectory. What I tell my students is it is Lincoln who not only wins the Civil War and preserves the Union, he creates American world power because it is through Lincoln's presidency and then Grant's that we get the Transcontinental Railroad completed in 1869, which makes the United States the single largest integrated free market in the world and still is. Full stop, you understand our power, and you understand why Silicon Valley and Austin exist. As a consequence, Austin can bring in the best talent from around the country. We don't pay tariffs. We we, we can integrate that talent. That's who we are. Yeah, yeah. The war begins, and I I thought it might be helpful to spend a little bit bit of time focusing on the the Confederacy itself. And, you know, I think one of the themes that I picked up just in – getting familiar with your presentation of the civil war is some of the not only unearthing of uh you know, people and facts about the the people i think you really regard as traitors um who are not very well known to historians or, or a modern audience but also the way in which you know, i w- went to college in the south i've lived in the south we're both now in texas if some of these figures are still really revered in large swaths of our country, it maybe would would be helpful to start at the top with the man who led the Confederate Army, who is still, I think, in many parts of our country regarded as a bit of a god. Um, who was that man? You know, my my understanding is that you know uh, Robert E. Lee was basically asked to lead both the Union Army and the Confederate uh, Confederate Army. What do we know about that man? And and maybe more importantly, what is it about him that you think has led to this misunderstanding currently that 
he's still somebody worthy of revering? Yeah, such a good question and so important. And it's a, it's a perfect question for understanding how history combines with present politics, right? Uh, because you're right, there still are many high schools named after Robert E. Lee. Uh, most ironically, if you go to Arlington, Virginia, which is just over the Potomac from D.C., it's considered part of D.C. by most people. Half of the Defense Department is there. Uh, the main road is Robert E. Lee Boulevard <laughs> um, because it's near, uh, you know, what is now our national cemetery, uh, Arlington, which was his home, actually, yeah. right? Um, actually, it's a nice bit of irony that the, the cemetery <laughs> for Union Dead is, is, is Robert E. Lee's old home. So uh, Lee uh, was uh, the greatest uh, military leader of his time. And he was seen uh, by many as a hero, first of all, just for his generalship, for his ability to take a weaker army and keep it in the field as long as he did. Uh, as you said, he, he was offered the commission to lead the Union Army as well as the Army of Northern Virginia, the, the Confederate Army. And he uh, apocryphally said, I will not raise my sword against my state of Virginia. And uh, as far as we know, um, he was not a rabid uh, confederate. He was a slaveholder and a believer in that society, but he wasn't the worst of the worst. He wasn't uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, someone who seemed to uh, enjoy killing uh, his enemies. Uh, but uh, Lee was loyal to his section. Um, the problem with our understanding of Lee is we then have come to convince ourselves that at the end of the war, he... Uh, in a sense, returns to his loyalty to the Union. And what I show, show in the book is he doesn't. Uh, he remains committed to the Confederate cause. I think everyone is changed by war. This has happened in Iraq, happens in Afghanistan. We don't come out of the war the way we started. Yeah. And having fought for f almost four years uh, on the Confederate side, I think Lee is more of a Confederate at the end of the war than before the war. Yeah. And so, although he might have been torn in 1861, he's not torn in 1865. The, the key moment for me that I quote in the book, and it's in Grant's memoirs and Grant's correspondence, is the meeting between Lee and uh, Grant, famously at Appomattox, Appomattox Courthouse, sure. the town, uh, where um, Lee signs uh, an agreement to take his forces out of the field. Grant implores Lee to help not just end the fighting, but to bring the country together. Yeah. And Lee says, uh, to end this war, you're going to have to run your army three or four times over the South. He doesn't say, I'll help. He doesn't say, I'll embrace this defeat. He doesn't say, I will tell my men and families on my side to rejoin the Union and accept the Union. Um, he continues, in a way, to fight for the cause. Um, he doesn't encourage more military activity, but he never buys in to the Union victory politically and morally. Uh, so he submits but he does not embrace defeat. And that's a real problem because that makes it honorable to submit but not to actually embrace the new environment that one is in. It justifies. Uh, and I will say that many of the buildings, many of the statues, many of the commemorations for Lee and for Jeff Davis and for other Confederates, they come from people in the 1920s in a period of rabid uh, Jim Crow politics who are using these figures to justify yeah. their activities. Lee is made into a hero, a safe figure who looks acceptable to the Union, but also continues to justify the Confederate cause. And that's why he's depicted in this grandfatherly way. Mm -hmm. But that's a construction of neo-Confederates after the war. Yeah. Let's back up a little bit and talk about just the numbers here, right? The 
what what it looked like before the war began of the number of people, what the military numbers looked like before the Civil War began, um, the economies of the two different countries. I mean, one of the interesting things for me and uh, you know, refreshing myself with with your work about the Civil War is you know the role the the crucial role that the Southern economy really seemed to play in the textile world of England, and that a a real concern, I guess which I hadn't considered before and didn't know is that the union apparently was concerned that the British would likely, they were incentivized to uh, potentially you know, uh, favor the Confederacy or do what they can to recognize them and, and assist them. Bef- before the war began, what, what did, you know, on, on a high level, what did it look like between you know, the union and the Confederacy in terms of the, the really important statistics and facts about yeah. the two countries? Yeah. Two places? Well, so, so the most important statistic is that the <clears throat> South is truly King Cotton, yeah. which is to say the lion's share, more than 50%, in some measures, as much as 60 to 70% of world cotton is produced in the South. And uh, that's why slavery is in the South, right? Uh, it's used for tobacco and other things, but primarily the 4 million slaves yeah. are there. Uh, and it's the only slave population that's also self-perpetuating. It is a um, rich enough environment for them that the slaves are mistreated, but yet they don't die off before they spawn enough uh, to follow generation right. to generation. So you have a a regenerating population of slaves that is producing cotton for the world and the largest textile manufacturers in the world by far mm. are in England. It's, yep. the, it's the textile mills of England. And um, so the trade is vibrant from the south. This is really important. The south is trading more with England than the north. Yep. The north is the more industrializing and financializing part of the economy. Uh, but it is the South uh, that's doing this. And so the Southerners are the ones who are for free trade. And the English have themselves uh, abolished slavery in the early 19th century, but they continue to work very closely with Southerners. The second issue that's also important is that the Southern uh, gentry is often more close familial-wise to the English as well. There's a very strong connection between our aristocracy and theirs, much more so than the North. I mean, take, for instance, New York. New York is actually d- dominated by the descendants of the Dutch. Mm. That's why we have all these Dutch names in, in New York, right? Um, so you have these strong connections. Uh, when the Civil War begins, the English stay neutral, uh, but they want to continue importing cotton. Mm. And one of the things Lincoln has to do is initiate a blockade against the South. Now, this is considered an act of war by the British. Lincoln, of course, says, you've done this to us when we've tried to trade with the French during the Napoleonic Wars. And the English say, yes, and you said that was not legitimate. What makes it legitimate now? And Lincoln is very crafty. Lincoln says, well, this is a civil war. I have the right to blockade. Yeah. I don't, you don't have the right to blockade me from trading with a sovereign state, but the South is not sovereign. As the killing in the war increases, particularly at Antietam, uh, English liberals become very anti-Lincoln. So if you were to look at, as I have, English newspapers in 1862, 1863, Lincoln is treated as a Western ignoramus, a man from the boondocks, uh, who is a killer. 
a vicious killer because the Europeans had not seen war on the scale. War was traditionally fought uh, on a much smaller scale and fought as negotiation. Uh, so there's a lot of anti-Lincoln sentiment, and he has to work very hard. Uh, John Quincy Adams' son, Charles Francis Adams, is his ambassador to England and works very well to keep the English out of the war. Um, but the most important statistic here, getting back to your quote, your point, is that the, in, in some sense, the South is providing the fuel to the English for their textile world. And Lincoln has to work very hard to push them away from continuing that relationship, because if the British provide financial support to the South, they can stay in the war forever. How does Lincoln do this? The second statistic that matters uh, is that the the Union is able to do two things, is able to manufacture enough of a naval fleet, what becomes one of the largest naval fleets in the world, uh, constructed very quickly to blockade the South, and the Union is able to find enough other things to trade with England to make it worth England, England's while. Just as a side note, Egypt becomes the substitute cotton grower for the South, and that's the story of how Egypt rises in importance in the British Empire. Yep. And the population, I mean, from the outset, right, and this is another, another just fact that <clears> – <throat> piqued my interest is it seemed almost like an inevitability that given the resources and the manpower of the north the the likelihood of the south actually prevailing was seemingly very low was that your reading of the circumstances as well before the war started so that's the that's the reading that the english have and that's Mm -hmm. the reading that jeff davis and many southerners have not robert e lee Mm -hmm. um the southern strategy uh is that is to recognize that the Union has much, much more uh, power, hmm. more people, almost three to one, yeah. uh, many more manufacturing capabilities to produce more arms. Uh, so they have more people and more arms and more money. Um, so in that sense, you look at this and you say, this is not a fair fight. But Jeff Davis and others who recognize this, they also recognize there's another thing, which is that um, the union is not fighting to defend its soil. Right. And so the strategy of the South is a strategy of attrition, which is to convince the Union and convince people in the Union, especially in places like New York, that it's not worth fighting anymore, Mm. that they should just let this region go its own way. Um, A tie is a victory uh, for the Southerners. And and in a sense, this is a strategy that more often than not works. Um, Did the Taliban defeat the U.S. Army? No. But they, we came to a point after 20 years where we decided we didn't want to spend money on this anymore. And that's the view that the Southerners have. That's a Southern strategy. Southern strategy is not to conquer New York. At Gettysburg, they are trying to make a run for D.C., but it's not really an effort to conquer the North. It's an effort to tire the North out and break the will of the North. And Lincoln understands that. And Lincoln understands it's a real problem. That's why early on in the war, he tries to make it not about slavery, mm. but about something else. And the other challenge Lincoln has— Yes, the North has more people, but at the start of the war, Lincoln has no mechanism for conscripting people. Hmm. He has to go and get volunteers from the states. Imagine if presidents had to do that today. He does get conscription powers through Congress in 1862 and 1863, but initially, this is a war of volunteers. And so the Southern strategies will make it hard enough. We'll stay alive. This is Lee's strategy. I'll stay alive. And eventually the North will just lose their will. They'll give up. Kind of what happened when the revolutionaries fought the British. Did we defeat Britain? No. We made it too expensive for them to stay. That's what the Southern strategy is. Yeah. 
I think I'd, I'd love to spend a little bit of time focusing on on the man that I think everyone in this country is kind of raised to identify with with the Civil War, Abe Lincoln. And you have already given some you know background on on his life. I've heard you say this as well, and you're, you're one of the few people that I've ever heard link an idea. I remember reading in an article from Christopher Hitchens many years ago where he said it was his belief that the reason why Lincoln, you may have read this essay, um, the reason why Lincoln, he thought, was so identified with with slavery and eventually with abolition was because he himself felt like a slave as a young man. Who is this man? This is obviously, a, there's so much to say about him, but in your, in your reading of him and your estimation, what, what still resonates and matters to you about who that man was as a human being? Well, so much does. I mean, he is the great American in, in so many ways. Uh, Washington might've been our greatest leader in yeah. some ways, but Lincoln is the great American. There's so much to identify and revere in him. I mean, first of all, he comes from nothing. Mm. He has about two years of education and he masters the English language. Mm. You know, I read his speeches to students. I want them to hear the Gettysburg mm. Address in my voice, not his, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, and the second inaugural. And it still resonates. Uh, you can put up those words and they're short, brief, and he just nails the spirit and the interest. And he's able to bring people together in words with only two years of education. Yeah. Uh, so his ability to learn, first of all, his ability to adapt to change, right? What are we trying to teach leaders? Uh, that the leader of yesterday is not the leader of tomorrow. Mm. You have to make yourself into a new leader. He's constantly remaking mm. uh, himself. Uh, he overcomes such tragedy and difficulty. And I think that probably makes him stronger, but sadder at the same time. Uh, I think Christopher Hitchens is absolutely right. Uh, you look at Lincoln's early life, and because his father didn't have slaves, he treated Lincoln like a slave. And you see in Lincoln's correspondence, I think Hitchens was one of the first to cite this, mm. you see Lincoln saying, my father's treating me like a slave. When his father died, um, Lincoln was only um, 20, 30 miles away, I think, didn't go to his father's funeral. Uh, and that also makes him more human, right? He's not yeah. perfect. He's not perfect, right? The woman he loved, he originally couldn't marry, right? Mary Todd was his second choice, right? There are all these things that make it a truly uh, human drama. But I think in the end, there, there are three things that really jump out and make Lincoln, in a sense, evergreen uh, for me. Uh, first of all, uh, he imbibes the sense of union and American exceptionalism. This is his religion. Mm that there is something special about the United States. It's not always in practice, but in hope. As he says, we're the last best hope. And there's a kind of sense that this country has to succeed if anything else is going to work. And that commitment, and I feel that as the child of refugees myself, there's a way in which this is a savior country that, that doesn't excuse any of our mistakes. In fact, it's why I want to hold us to a high standard. Yeah. So there's that, uh, and, and I revere and identify with that, as I think many, particularly immigrants, do. Um, second, there is uh, Lincoln's political savvy. <laughs> His, this, this man, you know, he has a vision, he has a sense of purpose, obviously, um, but what he has that few people who have vision have is also political skills, mm. and there is something to political skills. Yeah. This is a man who is always aware of his audience, always finding the way to move you, let's say it honestly, to manipulate those. You have to manipulate to get where you want. And he does that. Uh, Ulysses Grant, who's a very good man too, is a failed president, as I point out in the book, because he doesn't have those skills. Yeah. He's used to giving orders. Yeah. Uh, the real politician is the person who gets things done when he can't give orders. Mm. Uh, and I think that's part of the key to our success in the Civil War. 
keeping the union together, as he does with all these politicians who saw the world so differently. So we've got his his vision of union. We've got his um, his political skills. And then uh, fundamentally, I think his willingness to be vulnerable, the third thing. I mean, he, he, he doesn't treat himself like a god. He, he recognizes he's more talented than anyone else around him. <laughs> But he anticipates the the emotional intelligence work of the late 20th century. He understands that you move people uh, not by making them feel inferior, Mm. but sometimes actually making them feel they're superior to you. His storytelling, his disarming abilities. uh, There's no case I've seen where he makes someone feel small. Mm. He actually makes people feel big. Yeah around him. And uh, to me, it's startling because it, it runs against everything we thought about leadership until the end of the 20th century. Yeah. And you get there and you realize, wow, we're just relearning what Lincoln knew. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. His psychological, you just said this, emotional intelligence and his humor too. You know, you, this is something I, I've heard you say, I think, I think this is close to verbatim of the reason why you love history and like teaching history is you think that we history is about stories and that really people, you can throw facts at human beings all day long, but what really sticks with people, what really resonates and what, what really can move people and change them are great stories. Lincoln was a storyteller. Absolutely. Absolutely right. (laughs) And perhaps one of the great storytellers in defense of the founding documents and the spirit in the best way of what this country is supposed to represent what did he latch onto? What what was it that he was able to, um, you know, it's like a nerve that he was able to touch, and then through his you know concise use of and master mastery of language, convey to a population that really allowed them to mobilize around him. What 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 did he? It's a great question. In, in the people, I I think the phrase he uses uh, that I quote that comes up time and again is the opportunity for the penniless beginner. Mm. And for him, the American dream, it's still the American dream, is you have nothing except your hard work and your drive, Mm. and you can still make it. You you don't necessarily become the richest millionaire or billionaire. He Mm. didn't. But he, he was able to, after many failures, live a very comfortable life before he was president. If you visit Springfield, Illinois, you see yeah, uh, he's, a pros- yeah. he's a prosperous lawyer. Yeah. You know, they have a nice home. They have help in the home. Um, and this, this is the product of the penniless beginner having a chance to make his way. That's the story he's telling time and again. You know, it's not Horatio Alger pulling yourself up by the bootstraps because it's not just about an individual alone. Mm. For him, it's a more complex, I think, story. It's a story about a community. It's about people. The Republican Party is supposed to help you, not with a handout, but provide you the conditions, Mm. provide you law, provide you order, provide you education. This is why Lincoln uh, signs the Moral Land Grant Act, one of the most American of uh, pieces of legislation. It creates our public university system. We're Mm. the first country Mm. to actually say every citizen should have a chance to go to a university Mm. if they want. Every farmer should learn agricultural science science and Shakespeare. That was Lincoln's vision. (laughs) The Homestead Act, all this land, uh, also legislation signed by Lincoln in places like Kansas, land that's available to families for free. Hmm. You have to live on the land for five years. You can't be a developer and sell it to someone else. So he's not a land man like Stephen F. Austin. Hmm. He is a, he's committed to helping families settle the land. And I think the story he's telling over and over again is the most American of stories, the penniless beginner's mobility 
right? It's it's what still draws you and I, Dan. Yeah. And and he finds so many ways, and and many of the humorous stories he tells make fun of those who don't understand this, yeah. who get too big in their bridges. <laughs> the other, and I know they were, you know, borderline friends at the end of Lincoln's life, and the this is another central figure in this in the story of the Civil War, which is which is U.S. Grant. This is another thing I love about history, and you just talked about the very humanness about Lincoln. You you learn the story, the first 40 years of U.S. Grant's life, he failed at essentially everything he touched outside of his marriage. I believe this is correct, that around my age, in his mid to late 30s, he's selling wood on a street corner in St. Louis to try to earn money. That's correct. Had never done anything, was drinking too much, had been reprimanded in the military for being known as kind of a drunk. And now there are statues of him in our country. Who was this man? What what was the role that he played in the in the Civil War, and and what resonates with you about him? Well, the first thing that resonates with him is there's still a chance for us, Dan. <laughs> you you always get another chance, yeah. right? Um, uh, you 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 nailed it. I mean, Grant is uh, he he is an endearing figure. He's a well liked figure in every environment that he's in. But he's a never-do-well. Yeah. He's that well-liked person we grew up with who just seems to fail at one thing after another, and friends bail him out, hmm. but never amounts to anything, and you've kind of given up on them, that yeah. person from your neighborhood. You're, you're worried about them. You like them, but you don't expect <laughs> them to turn out to be anything. Um, he benefits from having an adoring wife, a wife he also adored, hmm. who had a father who ran a store and sometimes helped him out. Sometimes he worked in his father's store, which was the worst yeah. father-in-law <laughs> store, the worst of, of all of all worlds. Um, for him, the Civil War uh, is an opportunity. Right, he gets involved in the war not because he's a warmonger, hmm. but uh, he has military experience, and men like he are being commissioned again, hmm. and he wants to serve his country. And it provides him an opportunity to do something meaningful again. And early on, he has a mixed record, but he finds his niche. And here is his niche. He is someone who has uh, two things that are essential for a military commander. Uh, First of all, he has an understanding of the battlefield. He sees more than in front of him. He's what any, any leader, strategic leader has, right? The ability to see the geometry of the space you're in not just the, the the focused image of where you are. And if you look at the Vicksburg campaign, mm. for example, he's two or three steps ahead of the mm. Confederate generals. And so he's able to understand uh, a larger battlefield space and complex movement. Why he's able to do that, we don't know. It's just something he has that hadn't come out before. Mm. And then second, uh, he's a man of dogged determination. He's failed enough to know <laughs> that you have to stick with things. And he's not afraid to fight. Uh, McClellan, who is the commander of Union forces, is afraid to fight. There's just no way. Uh, Lincoln says in one letter that McClellan has the runs. He keeps running from them. Right? That's not Grant. So he has the dogged determination, and he has this broader vision of the battlefield, understanding the integration of different territories. And at Vicksburg and elsewhere in the West, uh, he becomes, at a time when the Union army is doing so poorly, mm. He becomes one of the few commanders who's actually winning battles. And and in many ways, it's his activities in 1863-64 that win the election for Lincoln. 
Yeah. Uh, and Lincoln deserves enormous credit for holding election during the war, which, by the way, is when we started mail-in voting so soldiers could vote. <laughs> and uh, it's Grant who's winning those battles. And eventually, after Lincoln goes through so many failed generals, he gets to Grant and he finds his man in Grant because he sees Grant's talent. But he sees also that Grant understands what needs to be done, which is, as Lincoln said, you need to catch the enemy in your hand and not let him go. Mm. Time and again, McClellan lets Lee's army escape. What Lincoln realizes and what Grant realizes is that winning the war is not winning the battles. Winning the war is destroying Lee's army. Mm. When the Confederacy has no army left, they will not be able to fight anymore. And that's how the war ends, right? It's the pounding in Richmond of what's left of Lee's army hmm. that forces Lee to, to back down. Uh, one other thing needs to be said is that um, Grant had his moments of drinking heavily as a soldier, and that should not be apologized for or covered up. Uh, but he was a man who cared about his soldiers and was seen that way. So even though he would send many of them into battle to die, unlike McClellan, he was not a soldier. He was not a general who led from on top of the mountain. Hmm. He was down in the valley with his soldiers. Yeah. And he understood that kind of leadership, right? You've got to walk the shop floor yeah. with your employees. I want to talk about the the end of the war. Sure. And you've already given a little bit of time of talking about Appomattox and elements of Appomattox that I don't think most people realize in the sense that unlike, you know, probably when both of us were, were, were young and reading about history of having formal ends of the war be recognized by the loser and their leadership. And that that was just something that I certainly had taken for granted as being inevitable at the end of warfare, including in our civil war. And you give time and you've just alluded to this earlier in the conversation about the gray area that, uh, you know, my understanding is uh, that was a part of Appomattox in the sense that there wasn't the full, recognition and cooperation of the losing side in admitting what had happened and accepting those consequences. Honestly, in some ways, it seems like many of the next 70 years can be linked back to the failure of that moment. I don't know if that's too strong of a statement, oh, but I, I would love right. to hear your your take on that, that specific point in time in, in our own history and how that ended up failing us time and again as a country. Well, I think that the best place to start in answering this question is in some ways World War II, mm. because that's the model we all have in our minds of how a war should end, right? I mean, the Germans uh, unconditionally surrender. There's no Nazi regime left. And the Japanese come close to that. They keep the emperor. But they, they both of the enemies accept not only that they've lost, but that we were right and they were wrong. Yep. <laughs> and their remaining leaders say that. Yeah. That is not how most wars end, and that is not how the Civil War ends. You and I were taught to think of it like World War II, mm. and it wasn't like that at all. Um, and I think, first of all, we have to recognize how hard it is to get to a point where the defeated enemy actually accepts defeat. And this is something we have to remember where historians can really help military planners, mm. because we think that's going to happen because we have overwhelming force. Overwhelming force is often not enough. Yeah. We won in Iraq. We beat Saddam's army, but we didn't get them to admit and give in that we were right and they were wrong. And that's why there was an insurgency. And the same thing happens in the South. The Union had far superior capabilities and had pounded the Confederate army to death, uh, but they hadn't used yet enough force 
to convince all Southerners that the Union was right. I'm not saying they should have committed that force, mm. but I'm saying that's what it would have taken. Uh, what I'm getting at here, Dan, is that it is much harder to convince losers to accept their loss than we think. Mm. Uh, simply winning on the battlefield does not change their minds. It takes much, much more than that. And the union wasn't prepared to invest in that. Mm. It was prepared to invest in helping the 4 million slaves. Uh, more could have been done, but there was a Freedmen's Bureau. The Union Army was in the South to some extent to help with that. But there wasn't a sense of actually convincing the Southerners that they had to accept not just the end of slavery, mm. that they had to accept a multiracial democracy. Mm. The union wasn't claiming that there was equality between the races, yeah. but that all races had to be included. Mm. And uh, first point is that's really hard to do. Uh, but it's doubly hard, and this is where I would criticize union leadership, including Lincoln, it's doubly hard to do when you um, delude yourself into believing it's easy <laughs> or delude yourself into believing it'll just happen. Yeah. And so one of the lessons I would take out for other wars, let's say Ukraine and Russia now, uh, if there comes a point where Ukraine, I hope, wins this war – uh, don't expect the Russians simply after they lose in Ukraine to be convinced and change their ways. Yeah. We better have a plan to do something more. I'm not saying military action, but there's got to be something more uh, beyond that. I think the Union was not intellectually or militarily prepared to carry this through as far as it had to go. And I'm not necessarily criticizing that, yeah. but that's the reality of the period. And I'd love to give you also some some time to you know give your thoughts on what those mistakes specifically were that if we had handled you know the very beginning of the end of the Civil War and you know Reconstruction has always fascinated me because of the initial successes that seem to have been resulted from more equitable, fair elections. You know, this is something that I remember you saying as well in, in a, a lecture that you gave that I think that something like this is right, that there were more African-Americans who were holding public office in 1870. At that peak of the wave, roughly in that time period, that was the high point, And we wouldn't reach that again for almost 100 years. That's right. I think until the 1950s or 60s. Until the late 60s. Until the late 60s. Yeah. yeah. Until after the 64 Act, and it's really the 68 election. There are more African Americans elected to state and federal office in 1868 than there will be until 1968, yeah. which is extraordinary. I think the, the two um, mistakes, uh, that's overstating it. The two things that if we could rerun history, sure. I think you and I would like to change and the conditions might not have allowed it, so it mm. might not be fair even to, to say this. Uh, but one is there should have been a larger Union Army presence in the South much longer. The 1868 election is the fairest election of its time because the Union Army is there enforcing it. Mm. And more needed to be done to create federal courts, uh, to create uh, basically justice administered from the federal government in states that were refusing mm refusing to apply the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments. Mm. Uh, that's one thing. And then I think the second thing that should have been done, and this really could not have happened at the time, there wasn't even the institutional structure for this, was there had to be much more investment in the South, not just in African-American communities, quite frankly, in poor white communities. Mm. Um, because in many cases, race became a crutch for those whose lives were economically and socially deteriorating. Mm. And I think that's not dissimilar from our own time. Uh, I, I think the, the, the potential for hate is in most human beings mm -hmm. and is brought out by certain conditions. Yeah. And not enough was done, I would say, 
it seems paradoxical, but to help poor whites as well as poor blacks in the South after the war. Yeah. This is something else I did not know until getting more familiar with this book and your and your work. And this, to me, is a confluence of ambition and economics and politics. And that is the election of Rutherford B. Hayes. And I was just reading up on this last night. You know, I, you must be like this because you're a historian, but it's just fascinating opening up this world of a man I knew nothing about and learning about his life. You know, if, if I remember correctly, he was he was a Republican, but part he was an aspirational man who was running for president. I think right around the time of the Depression of nineteen of eighteen seventy three, which prior to the Great Depression was the Great Depression Absolutely. in the history of our country. Absolutely. And during that time, we're financing the union. I believe there's still an effort in the South to enforce a lot of the the laws and the the, point, the real point of the Civil War. He's a, a, attempting to ascend to the presidency, and while he's doing that, essentially cuts a deal with Southern Democrats to give him the the presidency in one of our closest elections ever. I guess this is 1872, 1876, 1876. So after the after the 1873 depression right. and probably the and during uh, it, it's still the still enduring running. effects yeah. of it. Talk about that moment because again, this is another touchstone <laughs> that seems like to me is certainly lost in my own sure, historical sure. education that had massive echoing effects. <laughs> And throughout the generations of our to own country. To totally. And and also, again, back to how history is taught. And we're talking about how it's taught in the North, not in the South. You know, to you and I, Dan, when we were in high school and maybe even in college, right, we were taught, yeah, you know, American elections work pretty well. Hmm. You know, we have this electoral college and generally it figures out who's won the election, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you find when you look in the late 19th century that every election is contested. Every election is really close. Really close elections are bad for our democracy. Yeah. And uh, there are all kinds of deals that are being cut. Uh, there are problems with our electoral system. We need to reform it. Uh, and that's something we learned the last few years, but it's an old problem. We've mm -hmm. simply forgotten for a number of decades. Uh, in 1876, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes is running against another very good man, uh, Samuel Tilden, who's the governor of New York. So Hayes is the governor of Illinois, of, excuse me, of Ohio. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is the governor of Ohio, is running against the governor of New York. That's how he became president then, either from New York or Ohio. <laughs> and for a while it's Virginia, then it's New York, Ohio. <laughs> Well, now it's kind of Texas, it seems, right? <laughs> and um, so uh, uh, Hayes loses the electoral vote. Uh, Tilden in 1876, uh, with the removal of most, not all of Union Army forces and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and other uh, vigilante groups in the South, blacks are prevented from voting in the South, so the Democrats re-win southern states. And there are a number of northern states that Democrats win because northerners are tired of this, uh, particularly New York. New York wants to reestablish economic connections. Uh, so Tilden wins more popular votes. Uh, but in three states, it's really close. And under our electoral system, if you win the state by one vote, you get all the electoral votes. Yep. And if Hayes wins South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana, he has the election by one electoral vote. Each of those three states has a Republican governor. Mm who's just lost the election, but is still the one to certify. They all certify that Hayes has won, and of course, the Democrats don't accept that. And we go until just about March, which is inauguration time without a president. As you said so well, Dan, uh, Hayes and his team, even though they're upstanding people, they realize we need a president, we need to make some kind of deal. So they make a deal with the Democrats, which basically, it's not dissimilar from the deal Kevin McCarthy made with the extreme in his party. Basically, let... 
Hayes become president, but we'll give you, the other side, all the things you want. Yeah. Uh, removing union forces from the South, signing legislation, including the Posse Comitatus Act, that prohibits the enforcement of the law by the union forces in the South. And here's the interesting thing, uh, transfer payments, subsidies for the South. The South wants agricultural subsidies, and soon it will get military bases, too. That's why so many military bases are later put in the South. That process Mm. begins then. Hayes doesn't really have much of a choice. He's doing this, and this is why I think he's a fascinating story. He's a good man. He recognizes this is not the most morally upstanding deal, but he sees no other alternative to move forward. And then he becomes president, and he tries to remake the power of the presidency, and he fails. He's lost all of it. And the Southerners use this deal to basically uh, dislodge him from having any influence in their region. And you could basically argue that for the next 30 to 40 years, the South goes its own way, and presidents are pretty weak, which is why most people don't know who the presidents are from Hayes until Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah, that's fascinating. I have to give you time to talk about... Some of the Confederates, and I think the number I've heard you say is 50,000 former Confederates who flee what is now the continental United States and basically, if I remember correctly, joined the military of Mexico. This is many of these people, as you point out, I think consistently in many of your, your interviews about this book, become the actual people who are elected in our country and write voting laws themselves. I know there are many of these characters that you have researched, but I would love to just give you an opportunity to speak to what I think is just, just you know, like objectively one of the most fascinating things about your book. Who were these people? Yeah. And, and what is that story? Because this is something I think you have also said that I don't think this is very well known. To I had never heard of this no, before. I, I, actually, most historians don't even know about this. I didn't know very much about this at all. Uh, this is why we do research. We stumble <laughs> upon new things. And this is a story that's hiding in plain sight. Because these, uh, I call them double traders, right? They're secessionists who then flee and join a foreign army, which yeah. is the definition of treachery. Um, they have, there's a whole cottage industry of their fans writing about them. Mm. So it's not hard to do research on them. They just don't fit our narrative, right? Mm. We have a particular way of viewing the story, and they don't fit it. So I, I profile four of them uh, in, in the book. Uh, Joe Shelby. Uh, John Bankhead Magruder, uh, Professor Maury, M-A-U-R-Y, and then Alexander Watkins uh, Terrell. Um, And in each case, these are men who were in positions of leadership in the Confederacy. Shelby and Magruder were generals, actually well-known, well-respected generals in the field. Shelby from Missouri, Magruder from Texas, and both were actually leading forces in Texas at the time, is a very Texas part of the story. Um, Matthew Fontaine Maury, Professor Maury, was actually the Confederate ambassador to England. (laughs) He's the one who was trying to negotiate for the English to continue buying cotton. And then Alexander Watkins Terrell, who I'll say the most about now because his story is, I think, the most interesting and also concerning. Mm. Uh, He's a judge in Harris County, uh, the county that includes Houston, and he becomes a general uh, in the uh, Confederate Army as well. These four men and others refuse to surrender. The story we're told is that after Appomattox, Southerners have surrendered. No. Uh, They take 50,000 other men with them and their families and their slaves Mm. to Mexico. There, by the way, is a large number that go to Brazil uh, as well. And uh, those who go to Mexico, in this group in particular, they join the army of Maximilian I. 
Maximilian is the nephew of Louis Napoleon in France, who himself is the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. Louis Napoleon, most famous for redesigning Paris, the Paris we see today, the beautiful Paris, was designed by his architect, uh, Baron von Haussmann. <laughs> Louis Napoleon uh, wants to reacquire the uh, glory of his uncle, Napoleon Bonaparte, and he's going to do this, he believes, by taking back the Louisiana Purchase. Hmm. And how is he going to do that? He's going to use Mexico as a beachhead to get back the territories. And Mexico is in debt to France, so he sends Maximilian over to take over the the country. And there's a civil war in Mexico going on between Maximilian, the royalists from France, and Benito Juarez, who's a local uh, Republican in a mm-hmm. sense. And um, these Confederates, they join the royalist army. That's goal is to take back territory for France from the United States. Why are they doing this? Because Maximilian, first of all, gives them land to restart their plantations in a place called Carlata, hmm. named for his wife, uh, in Mexico. Uh, and he promises that if he takes back this land, they can go back to the South and rule the South as they wish. Uh, what could be clearer treachery? Um, Maximilian is a terrible leader. He's captured uh, by the Republican forces and executed, and we have the beautiful Edward Manet painting that many people have Mm. seen in the uh, uh, Musée d'Orsay that shows this moment. These uh, true traitors uh, who have gone to Mexico, Shelby, Magruder, Maury, and Watkins Terrell, they then come back to the U.S. and proclaim themselves heroes. What do they say? They say, well, you see, we were true to the cause. We never gave up even though we joined a foreign army fighting against the United States. We never gave up. We were true to the cause. Alexander Watkins Terrell, the one I wanted to say more about, he comes back. He's the one who was the judge in Harris County. He comes back and lives in Austin and decides he's going to run for office and is elected to first the state house, then the state senate as a Democrat, becomes the leader in the state Senate of the Democratic Party in Texas, which is the only party in Texas. Mm. He actually writes the legislation to found the University of Texas. Uh, so he's there are quotes and his name appears in some of our older buildings. Uh, and then, as you alluded to before, he writes the voting laws. So just think about that. The man who was part of the Confederacy, who defended slavery, then refused to surrender, joined a foreign army, is writing the voting laws in Texas. And those voting laws were on the record, on the books from the 1870s until after World War II. He created the white primary, which Texans don't learn about, even though Texans get, like my kids, two years of Texas history, but somehow this doesn't come up. The Alamo (laughs) comes up, but not this. Uh, The white primary was basically a primary in Texas that said uh, only whites could vote, non-whites could not vote. So even though the 15th Amendment says you can't deny someone the right to vote in an election based on race, the claim in Texas was that the primary is not an election, that it's a private club. So uh, until 1944 in Texas, because of Terrell, if you were non-white, you did not get a choice in the candidates in the Democratic primary, and that was often the only primary. Lyndon Johnson was elected to office by winning a Democratic primary. He didn't even have a Republican challenger. Hmm. Uh, and he was elected in a white white primary. The only thing that changes that is the Supreme Court in a ruling at the end of World War II. So the point here is that these traitors, these people who most obviously resist, they never accept surrender. They are allowed to fight against the Union a second time, and when they lose a second time, they're allowed to come back and retake power. Talk about meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah. That's the world here. Why does that happen? <laughs> 
that happens largely because they were pardoned by <laughs> Andrew Johnson. And I think an important lesson in this, and it's an important lesson for historians to remind people of, is that we can't forget the past. Hmm. Uh, if you forget the past, it will come back to bite you. Yeah. Uh, people must be held accountable. What they did matters, and legal processes exist for that reason. Yeah. That stuff is just so damn interesting. I had never <laughs> heard about any about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you can see why we don't tell that story. It yeah. doesn't fit, even for Northerners, it doesn't fit a clean story. Yeah. That's not how it's supposed to work. Right. right? Yeah. The, you know, the other, there's so many topics uh, that, that you cover that I, I think are so interesting. But w one other one I just, I have to get your, your, your take on is the link between the end of the Civil War, the veterans who, are obviously upset. You talked about how difficult it is for people to accept defeat in anything, but especially in war. And the link between those individuals and the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. What is that story? What's the link? So what I often say, Dan, when I'm talking to a group of, you know, Rotary or Chamber of Commerce people, they're often very kind and organize events in different cities <laughs> for me to give books. And I, I try to be grateful to give a book talk and, you know, they buy books. And But what I often say to them that I think is true, they might not feel comfortable with is um, those are exactly the kind of groups that populated the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. Ku Klux Klan was not populated by crazies. Just as I don't think a lot of our right-wing groups today are populated by crazies. There are some crazies. Mm. Um, but uh, many veterans who come back from the war, um, they're in a really dire situation. Uh, in most cases, they were slaveholders, and they might have actually done some things that uh, we think are wrong in the war. But they've just been trying to get by. Most people go along. Yeah. They're trying to get by. You grew up in South Carolina. Men of your age were supposed to serve, so you went and served because if you didn't, you'd be uh, alienated from mm -hmm. your society, right? And they come home. I'm not trying to erase their atrocities, but I'm just trying to empathize. That's what we try to do as historians to see things from other people's point of view. Uh, these veterans come home. Their farms are destroyed. The money they had in the bank that was in Confederate dollars is worthless, mm -hmm. right? There's no inheritance. Uh, the main labor... Their employees, their, their, their slaves are gone. Yeah. No, so they have nothing. They have nothing. And, and many of them are maimed and, and injured. They can't farm themselves. They're in really terrible conditions. And uh, this is a common phenomenon. They find solace. They find company in people like themselves. Mm. And they find company in expressing their anger by blaming uh, union activists and by blaming African Americans. Mm. And that's a common human phenomenon. I don't actually think that's about race. Yeah. I think that's about deprivation and status and class. Uh, they have nothing uh, except their anger. And then the Ku Klux Klan offers them, and there are other groups like this that I talk about, the Red Shirts in South Carolina, mm -hmm. these groups that become violent, like the groups that the January 6th individuals joined, they promise a way forward that we will take back our society. We will take back our land. We will keep those other people out. We will get rid of them. And that becomes an intoxicating way forward for those who feel helpless and have nothing else. And and that's what it is. Uh, and these groups multiply for that reason. Mm. These are small businessmen and small land landholders who have nothing except this. And uh, unfortunately, there really isn't a counterweight to that. The union forces in the South are too small. The African-Americans who do try to defend themselves and their Republican supporters, their numbers are too small. These groups have all the advantages. Mm. 
And in a place like South Carolina, as I talk about with Ben Tillman and others, uh, they literally take control of the state, in some cases, conducting coups in local towns. Mm. Um, and I describe in the book, it was hard to write about this, the extreme violence that's used. And, and this is an important point. Violence is a form of politics. It's used to intimidate people. Don't come here. Don't compete with us. Don't vote. Mm. Uh, and uh, that becomes part of the normal way of life. We have to see that because, you know, our society, Dan, is still one of the most violent societies in the world. Mm. We're very democratic, but we're also very violent. Yeah. And we haven't come to terms with how violence is used effectively as bullying. Um, the, the gentleman who broke into Nancy Pelosi's house, I read the affidavit when he was uh, – interviewed by the FBI afterwards, it's online, and he used the same words uh, these men did in the 1870s. He said, I wanted to break her knees and wheel her into Congress so all the Democrats would see the consequences of their action. And he mm. thinks he's a hero. He cites the founding fathers. Mm. Ben Tillman said, as I quote in the book, that he wanted to cut off the arms of every African-American who voted so others would see what happens if they yeah. voted. That kind of violent rhetoric, we reject it, but it remains prominent and acceptable in many parts of our society. And that's a legacy from this moment. And that's the Ku Klux Klan that becomes the Proud Boys, that becomes many of these other groups. Fascinating. I know we're getting a little bit close to the end of the conversation. And I, I want to give you uh, some time to talk about a theme of this conversation, which is the theme of stories. And... I know you love stories. You're a great storyteller yourself. What you, know, you teach young people for your job. That's what you primarily do. What are the stories to you? If you were writing the textbooks, you know, you're a public intellectual. What are the stories that we need to be telling honest stories, our young people and just our, our citizens in general that, Maybe the, the best way to put this is that might help us to unlearn some of the mythology that especially areas of the South have been brought up with. What what story, you know, we've talked about Lincoln and what a great storyteller he was. And I've lived to see, you know, presidents in my own day that were great storytellers. What are the storytellers that you think could really resonate to unlearn, to upend some of the residual effects of, of the civil war. It, I, I have to note this as well before uh, letting you talk that, you know, I think we talked about this the first time I ever met you, that you mentioned Germany already in this conversation. I've been to concentration camps. I've been to Hiroshima. You know, there, there is a, an admission that is palpable in these civilizations of their greatness in their history and also their horrendous acts of brutality and savagery and genocide and kids are brought up to go to concentration camps and see that for themselves and i think this is something you and i talked about the first time we ever chatted that that is not yet a part of our fabric right in our culture anyways that's a long statement there but i would love to just give you an opportunity to talk about stories and talk about the way you you think about this you know you have kids and and you teach you teach kids what 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 how do you think about that? What are the stories that you think can really help there? It's, I think the most important question, uh, because as you said before, and, and, and as I completely agree, it is stories that stick with us, that persuade us. It's very hard to persuade someone with argument mm. and facts. We like yep. to think that, that. No, but it's a story. 
that, and we all have stories that were told to us that have stayed with us our entire lives, maybe told by our grandparents、mm. or someone else. So I think the best way to tell stories to people, and what I try to do to student with students, is to expose them. To a variety of stories that give you many perspectives on our history and our society, all with the emphasis upon the humanity of individuals.、Hmm. I don't think that good storytelling is about people who are inhuman, superheroes,、mm. gods,、mm. uh, but actually people who are very human and very flawed,、yeah. but yet do extraordinary things, extraordinary good and extraordinary bad. And I want my students to see both in our society. I want them to see the greatness of our society in the true pluralism, in the Madisonian sense of who we are, in our aspiration to be so much better, how we have sometimes reached, often fallen short. And can strive to do more. So,、uh, in constructing this book, for example, I really wanted、uh, to tell the story of Abraham Lincoln、mm-hmm. and Ulysses Grant. I mean, Ulysses Grant, I have so much respect for reading his letters as I did for this book. What you see in this man is someone who really cares about Southern citizens after the war. He would spend so much time as president. Reading letters from people in the South, from African Americans and whites, who would write to him, explaining their suffering. Complaining about local violence so much so that members of his cabinet tried to hide the letters from him because he was so moved by them. Ronald Reagan did this too, by the、yeah. way. Right here's someone at the top who himself is taken in by these stories and wants to tell those stories.、Uh, that's so endearing. That shows such a commitment on his part. At the same time, that I want people to see that in Grant, not the person we're told was a drunk and、mm. all this other stuff, because it's not who he was. I want them to also see. The ways in which, in Memphis in 1866, a white mob not only、um, destroyed a、uh, new, somewhat prosperous African American community of freed slaves, but then、uh, publicly raped women,、uh, publicly maimed them, burnt their homes. Uh, sending a message to all African Americans, far and wide,、uh, what would happen if they tried to do this, and how local police and sheriffs and judges were at the front lines of the white mob.、Mm. Uh, that story needs to be told too, just like the story of Tulsa、yeah. in the early twentieth century. Those stories need to be told too, and we need to see the humanity in the suffering. And the humanity in the evil doers,、mm. and and what the fear that motivated them.、Mm. Uh, these were actually not, you know, devils. They, it was the circumstances and the ways in which the circumstances played to their hate, and they, of course, led into that hate and leaned into that hate and did all these horrible things. I think students need to hear a range of stories like this, and they need to see the possibilities in our society of good and bad, and see the choices that we make. And what I'm always trying to get across to students is: you don't choose the circumstances, but you still choose how you react. Yeah, to those circumstances, and stories give us a way to imagine ourselves in different roles, and they give us a way also to warn ourselves, <laughs> to warn ourselves、uh, of the hate we can all become a part of.、Yeah. I, I tell my students, you know. Think about some of the things you've said at a football game. <laughs> Think of the hateful things you've said about another team. Now, I'm not condemning you for that, but see what happens and know these stories. So, in essence, what I think storytelling is for our society is holding up a mirror、mm. to see our best and worst elements、mm. and to lean into both, to learn from both. That's why I'm opposed to any effort to teach history from one perspective. That's why I believe it has to be taught year in and year out by different kinds of people,、mm. and that's why I think the fullest, most patriotic history 
is showing the shortcomings and the accomplishments. I've never understood, honestly, why people think it's more patriotic just to tell a glorious history. Yeah. You know, I, the way I've always approached parenting, or the way my wife's approached parenting and I followed along, <laughs> is, you know, we love our children. We tell our children we'll support them in whatever they care about. But when we sit down for dinner, we also tell them how they can be better. Hmm. And they, by the way, have a long list about how I can be better. Sure. Yeah. We make ourselves better. Right, the people I love the most, I hold to the highest standards. That's how I think about my country, and I want to tell the stories that remind us not only when we've won World War II, but where we've fallen short in Reconstruction, so we can do better. Yeah, uh, that's that's what love is. That's what patriotism is. It seems. Yeah, love it. I want to close with this, and this is something I don't know about about your story, your personal story. But um, you mentioned this earlier when we were just starting to talk that you're you're the you're the you're the child of refugees. I know you're the child of immigrants, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. And I think you told me this the first time that we met that you are this American, this classical American mashing of a Jew and. An in, Hindu, a yeah. Hindu. I'm a Hindu. A Hindu. Get it right, Hindu. <laughs> and it seems like this is one of my favorite things about this country is that collision of totally. cultures that come totally. here and sprout a life in America. I know how much you care about this country. I I know that is what motivates a lot of your work. You know, what's the story of your of your, your parents? You used the word refugee earlier. Um, I don't think I know this about your own life. And how does that map on to what a lot of what we just talked about, right? It, it I think there, there, yeah. there must be a, a, a direct line. Totally. There. And it's why I'm an optimist, too, because you're <laughs> right. Uh, sometimes my kids accuse me of having toxic positivity. <laughs> But but I, I, I and and it all it all comes back to this you know maybe Freud was right we're all just reliving our childhood one yeah. way or another uh, look my 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 mother is the child of those who fled the pogroms in Russia mm. and my father came from India in 1965 mm. just after Lyndon Johnson signed the first immigration act that allowed Indians to come in wow there were quotas from 1924 to 1965 that's why. There were no not that many Indians in the mm. U.S. My father came to New York in 1965. No one knew what Indian food was. Can you imagine that? Wow. Um, and uh, my parents never became wealthy. They never they never were great successes, uh, but they made a way and they, they made their way in this society, mm. and they made it possible for me to be here. And I became a historian because from the earliest time, I was confused how this was possible, <laughs> where I came from, because we're taught to put people in these simple categories. Uh, you know, white, for example, mm -hmm. right? I'm not white, but I look white sometimes. People think, I've always wondered, why do they think? And then, you know, why for that matter do we group Irish in with other supposed white ent entities when they were called black sure. when they first, yeah. right? So we use these simple categories. Our language is sloppy. Mm. And we, we, we distort the co complex and interesting reality, the interesting stories that matter. And to me, it's always been a puzzle to figure out uh, how we come to where we are. Mm. It's also a religious question. What's really driving this? Is mm. it all chaos? Is it, you know, and that's for another conversation. Mm. Um, but to me, what makes the United States an extraordinary place is for all of our many failures, and there are many, we have time and again, in certain ways for certain groups, not for all, made it possible 
for people to reconstruct identities out of these strange mixings mm. that are unthinkable elsewhere. And my life is that. Uh, I went to public schools in New York. I got, got a fellowship to go to Stanford as an undergrad. I, I had no money. I couldn't even visit. Mm. I got to go because I had a fellowship. Mm. Um, and now I get to have a job as a professor. Mm. It's amazing, yeah. right? And that wouldn't happen in so many other societies. Um, and that possibility is who we are as a country. And uh, what really um, worries me uh, is the really continual violent effort to exclude people. Mm. Uh, and I'm not saying that to be politically correct. Yeah. And I don't believe everyone should make the same income. <laughs> people who work harder should have more, but mm. everyone should have an opportunity. Yeah. And the exclusion actually is not only hurting the people who are excluded, it's, ex it's hurting us as a society. Uh, but I believe there's always a counter push to include because it's who we are. And mm. that's what makes me optimistic. And that's why I wrote this book, because I think the dark part of our history that we see here, the failures that replayed a bit in the last few years, they don't have to keep replaying. Yeah. We can do better. We can remove these bad seeds mm. and remake our institutions. We could do so much more to encourage people to vote and participate and encourage better people. And I mean this on both sides of the aisle, better people to run for office. And so I think our history, this is a very Lincoln thing to say, teaches that we have many more possibilities than we sometimes realize. Mm. When we don't study history, we put everyone in a simple category, and we don't think that there's many possibilities. We just accept things as they are. The, the answer that's given by the ahistorical person is that this is just the way things are. Mm. No, they don't have to be this way. When you study the past, you see the possibility, possibility for complexity, mm. and possibility for change. Fair enough. This is a, a great privilege, and man, it's just awesome to see you. Um, so th to see thank you. you so much for doing this, Jeremy, and um, I really appreciate just all the fascinating insights and, and also just the mapping of your own personal story on, on this book and much of what you do. Um, congratulations, and um, thanks again for doing this. Thanks for having me on, Dan. I always enjoy talking to you. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.